Hello and welcome to Talking Cop from Bankers for Net Zero. I'm Naomi Kerbel and you're joining me on the ground in Sharm El Sheikh, where business leaders, policymakers, activists and artists have come together to take action towards achieving the world's collective climate goals. We're back in the green zone on the Bankers for Net Zero stand in the finance tent. So excuse a bit of background noise as people scurry about between meetings. And today I'm joined by Rob Gardner, who's currently Director of Investments at St. James's Place. Soon though, Rob, you're stepping down to pursue your financial activism. And I will let you speak in a minute, but I want to just explain to the listeners a little bit about your background. You say that you're on a mission to make money a force for good for people and the planet and create financial well-being in a world worth living in. You're on the advisory board of Rewired Earth, which is a partner of Bankers for Net Zero, and, and this bit I'm particularly excited by, you've written a book for children on how to manage money. I have no idea how you have the time to pack all of this in. Well, look, firstly, great to be here, and I suppose, second, because it's what I love doing. Financial well-being in a world worth living in is everything I do. And you touched down in COP a couple of days ago, or yesterday. Yeah. What are your impressions of COP this year? What are you hoping for? So, I have to say, the thing that got me most excited is, on the plane, I met two fellow geographers, so I feel like it's great to see so many geographers making their way over here. Yesterday was a bit slow. The whole feeling doesn't feel quite the same as Glasgow last year. But I think, you know, we're hoping for a big day today. It's Finance Day. And obviously this COP is branded as the kind of COP of action of implementation. And as you hear me talk, I love the idea of money as a force for good. So let's really find out if today people can put their money where their mouth is. You're very active on LinkedIn, and that was a source for lots of interest for me because you were talking about the trends for 2022. And I noticed you were saying the last decade was the decade of digitization. And this decade will be the decade of decarbonisation. How would you say the finance industry is progressing on that journey? Well, let me just maybe put some context around that. The point is, is that when people talk about net zero, currently we are producing 50 gigatons worth of CO2 every year. Now, a gigaton is a billion tonnes. And if you can imagine one enormous US aircraft carrier, so these are the biggest ships on the planet, if you fill 10,000 of those with CO2, that's one gigaton. And we've got 50 of those to reduce by 2050. And we need to do half of that by 2030. So that's a lot of reduction uh, that needs to be done. So I just kind of want to put out the scale of the challenge. It's fair to say, I think after COP26, people were feeling downbeat. I'm naturally more kind of glass half full. And if you just look at the number of corporations that have signed up to net zero pledges, a huge increase since 2019. Of course, there'll be some companies that signed up, didn't really know what they're doing, maybe overcommitted. But I feel there's been a real tipping point. At the same side, in my world, which is sort of retail investors, financial advice, the last three years has seen a huge increase in interest, not just from end clients of all ages and of all sexes, but also in the financial advisors themselves. And you can see that coming through by the demand for sustainability funds. And you know maybe we can touch on this later, but it's good, I think, that the FCA sees this trend coming through, which is a positive thing, and is actually trying to put in place labels to protect against greenwashing. So as we start to see the consumer demand come through, actually the risk tips to the other side that people sort of greenwash, and we need to get the balance right. How can we show that people are really doing what they're saying and people can trust that? 
We'll talk a little bit about legislation later, but one thing I want to dive a bit deeper into is natural capital, a term which you first came across at COP26, and how through leveraging that we can align to net zero, protect nature, grow the economy. Can you explain to listeners what exactly is natural capital, how we can take advantage of it, and is becoming nature positive the Earth's eureka moment, as I've seen you've described it? Yeah, the thing that was illuminating to me last year was I was at COP26, talking about net zero and climate change and my awareness was piqued about the fact that just how much biodiversity we've lost and so WWF do this report which has shown that we've lost 70% of all our biodiversity in the last 50 years it's pretty horrific really and so the decline in number of species but actually there are a number of flora and fauna that have just simply disappeared forever and so it's a wicked problem not only do humans cause climate change we also cause biodiversity loss and then climate change accelerates that biodiversity loss but here's the rub one of the best solutions to net zero to climate change is actually using nature to capture carbon so flora and fauna have evolved over three billion years and it turns out they're really good at capturing carbon so we could go and build new technology to suck co2 out the air But why wouldn't we let the whales and the elephants of the world do that for us? And so natural capital is this idea that nature provides what's called ecosystem services. So a good example is seagrass or kelp. It sequesters, that means captures more CO2 per area than tropical rainforest. So that's pretty good. Two, when there's seagrass, we get more fish. Again, another good thing. And three, seagrass is really good at dampening the impact of coastal flooding. So those are three ecosystem services that something like seagrass or kelp provides that today we don't put any value on it. Another great example is elephants. And so I want to kind of establish this idea that, you know, humans value what we price. And there is a price for nature. And the best example is elephants. So every year, 20,000 elephants get poached and killed. And the value of an elephant dead is $40,000. However, the value of an elephant alive with carbon prices at $25 a ton is $1.75 million over its lifetime. That's about $100 every day. So really, we should be paying those elephants to be sucking carbon out of the air for us. I have a dream where companies not only have a diverse team of men and women working in them, but they have a diverse team of animals who are quietly working in the corner, another side of the planet, sucking out CO2 for them and ensuring that they're achieving their net zero goals. But again, elephants do so much more than capture carbon. They improve the fertility of the soil by the way they kind of eat and defecate and then stomp that into the ground. They improve insect biodiversity. They improve bird biodiversity. The amazing thing is actually if we started recognizing the value of those elephants, we then need to pay people to look after those elephants. And we can create a real flow of income that flows from the global north that has kind of caused most of the problem to the global south to protect those guardians of nature. And that's kind of what I'm going to be doing next year. Rob, I had no idea I would be talking about elephants on this podcast today. So thank you for that. Absolutely fascinating, especially the dollar value dead versus alive. We were talking a little earlier about legislation, and I'm aware that from next year, UK listed companies are required to publish plans to get to net zero. And the UK is required in law to be net zero by 2050. Would you say that legislation is the only way to get things moving? So look, for me, this is more about change and adapting to climate change and biodiversity loss is probably the biggest change 
human population has ever gone through in the history of mankind. And too often, I think everyone just wants to say, well, we'll just wait for the politicians to do it. And the reality is we can't wait for our government officials to do that. Most politicians typically reflect what their voters do. It's few and far between where you have a politician who stands up and says, this is the future I believe in, and let me sort of take you there. Typically, they try and reflect where they think the current population is. So the second thing is, you know, a shift in behavior from companies. Already companies see their positioning with their clients as a strategic advantage, the most obvious of which is sort of Patagonia, the clothing business that has thought about how it's sustainable. Another great example is Veja, the kind of Brazilian shoe company that tries to have a totally sustainable supply chain, founded in about 2005 and has shown that there's a different way of making trainers and actually consumers really engage in that brand story as well as in the kind of aesthetics of the shoe. And then the third thing is, what do we as consumers do? How, as consumers, are we sending signals both to our politicians and to the companies that we buy from and or work for to get them to change their behaviour? So I, I really think it's all three of those things need to shift. Your clients typically, they are retail investors and they want to understand how a company that they are going to invest in is really doing. And it strikes me that all of this is about stories. I mean, you've been telling stories just now about natural capital. So allowing investors to see the true impact of companies. Would you agree that it is all story-based and that's what we really need to be doing? Well, it needs to be stories based on underlying fact and evidence and additionality and impact, because otherwise that would be greenwashing. Just to put some numbers on that, so St. James's Place has over 900,000 clients it's about 54% men, 46% women, so pretty evenly balanced. To put that into context, St. James's Place has over 900,000 clients across the UK. So from Cornwall to Wales to Northern Ireland to Aberdeen, back to London. It's roughly a 50-50 split between men and women, and the average age is 55. But we've got a few hundred clients who are centenarians, and we've got a few thousand clients who are literally babies uh, under the age of one. So... Every type of personality that you can imagine. But it's fair to say there has been increased engagement. What brings it to life is stories, but it has to be underpinned by fact and evidence. And I think what we don't do is tell stories of the traditional businesses. For a long time, people have liked to talk about Tesla because it's transformative and exciting. But I like to tell the story of Ford, which is one of the oldest automobile industries that pivoted a few years ago when the new CEO came in and said, look, we need to end internal combustion engines and we need to move to electric vehicles. Last year, they launched the Ford F-150 Lightning. Now, that won't mean anything to listeners in the UK, but in America, that's the most popular selling car. It's a big American truck. You'll recognize it from the movies. They launched their electric vehicle. It was the best selling car. They sold out. The CEO had to come on again and again and say, don't worry, we're fixing it and we're launching more cars. And what happened is Ford's share price, which had been on a 20-year terminal decline, sort of re-rated as it made that transition. So I think we need to be better at telling these stories of traditional businesses. Another example is Levi's Jeans or Wrangler Jeans, who's found a way to reduce the amount of water in the jeans manufacturing process by 96%. Or Heineken Beer, which is one of the biggest brewers of beer on the planet, has found a way to a dramatically reduce its carbon footprint but also reduce the amount of water in the manufacturing of beer and it's brands like brew drog that get a lot of the kind of marketing airtime 
and yet Heineken are quietly working away in the corner making this progress. So how do we bring these stories to life of businesses that have been around for a long, long time and the transition they're making, as well as the new companies that are coming in and saying there is a better way of doing it. But crucially, and I mentioned it earlier, storytelling is powerful. We know that, but it needs to be true. And we talked about legislation. The FCA has been really thoughtful about what it's called fund labeling. So if you're an investor and you're investing in a fund, and it's kind of come up with three new categories of funds relating to these kind of concepts of environmental, social, and governance. And I think one's improvers, one's focused, and then the other one is impact. And it's important that we also set that boundary to make sure that no one is telling stories that are untrue, because that's going to be damaging. Is that some of the work that you're doing with Rewired Earth? Well, look, I think Rewired Earth is trying to solve all of the issues that we've been talking about, which is, think back to the question you asked about politicians. And I said, well, politicians just mirror typically what their electorate are thinking. How can we evidence what is the demand of all those consumers? So how do we know what 25 to 35-year-olds want in the UK? How do we know what 45 to 55-year-olds want? And and those are just arbitrary sort of demographic ways of slicing and dicing data. But what is important to consumers? How are we making these trade-offs? How are people deciding what companies they go to work for. You know, there's increasing evidence that sort of talent is migrating to businesses that are responsible businesses that are walking the walk as well as talking the talk. We know that there are examples of brands like Patagonia and Vager who aren't the cheapest, but where people want to buy their products because of their sustainability story. But there is no standardized way, either for a consumer or an investor, to be able to compare bank A versus bank B or closed manufacturer A versus closed manufacturer B and so what Rewired Earth is trying to do is create what's called a citizen square which is based off the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and creating a really simple QR code and asking people what do you care the most about and what do you care the least about and by creating that data it allows the leadership teams of companies to focus on what their clients really care about It allows people in government to think about what do their voters really care about. And it allows people who are investing in those companies to say, well, look, I want my money to reflect my values and to be aligned with what I care about and what I care about least. And hence why Rewired Earth, because effectively it's a kind of re-plumbing of the system to make sure we're not just capturing the kind of profit data that's always been there, but how do we capture this broader sustainability impact piece as well in a consistent way. One of the things that hasn't been mentioned much on the ground here, but is a big concern back at home, is inflation, cost of living. How does all of that, the sustainability agenda, marry with that? So I'm going to stick my neck out here. A bit of a personal philosophy that I think in life you either pay for things up front or you pay for things in arrears or later. (laughs) And... A follow-on sort of saying is that you are where you are as a function of the decisions you made 10 years ago. You know, in the UK, what people aren't talking about is a lot of the inflation has been caused by a decision we made to leave the EU. And if you haven't listened to Mark Carney recently talk about the impact of Brexit, I recommend you do. But the sad truth is, is that, you know, if you go back to 2016, the UK economy was 90% of Germany's. Today, it's 70%. And he highlighted the risks of a weaker pound and importing inflation and all of the risks that we'd be in. And you'd be forced to rise interest rates when the economy's slowing, which is exactly 
where we are. I think at the same time, we can blame Putin, but you've got to ask yourself, how do we end up in this situation without energy security? How did Germany end up in its situation where it was so reliant on Russian gas? How did we end up in a world where so much of our food supply was dependent on wheat in the Ukraine? And so it's helpful to blame a bad person like Putin, but I think we also need to look underneath and go, well, what were the contributing factors? And look, this is a tension, but inflation will come and go. That has been the history of economics. Unfortunately, climate change isn't coming and going. It's coming and it's coming fast. And, you know, we need to address it. Likewise, biodiversity loss has just been a one-way trend for the last 50 years. And so, you know, the challenge for all of us, for politicians, for business leaders, as, you know, individuals, as parents, as consumers, as, as workers, we need to find a way through, and I think we can, where we can have sustainable economic growth, because we need economic growth. We can't just shut down the global economy, which is kind of what the extreme climate change activists want us to do. That doesn't work either. We need to find a way through, and that will, over time, dampen inflation, not in the short term. Uh, And the truth is, we look around the world, and that's what makes me positive, is there are models and there are companies that are doing the right thing. We're just not doing it enough at scale around the world. And if we get there, then I think we can have a a future which is a world worth living in. Final question, Rob, which I'm asking all of my guests here at COP27. What are you individually doing to make a difference? And what's the one recommendation you would give to the audience listening? I've done a couple of things. So firstly, I've kind of made sure that I understand my own personal carbon budget and upset that. I've made sure that my pension is as aligned with net zero as possible and I've decarbonized that. Uh, But I made the big decision to leave my job and start a new company focused on making it easy for individuals to invest in nature like the elephants. Because as I say, I think if we protect nature and restore nature, we can really put a dent in climate change. So that's what I'm doing personally. In terms of what individuals can do, and you mentioned my kind of financial education book at the beginning, I like to think there are kind of three or four things that you can do. So where you earn your money, where you keep your money, where you spend your money, and where you grow your money. So where you earn your money, the company you work for, is it a responsible business? I would really recommend you read the responsible business report of the company you work for. Does it have a responsible business strategy? It might be in the annual report and accounts. Do they have a responsible business or sustainability team? Reach out to them and understand, are they really doing what they're saying? And if it's not aligned with what you do, why not go and work for a company that is? So where you work, huge, huge impact. And you know, talent is a key constraint for businesses. So where you choose to work is massive. And even more so right now. Yeah. Two, where you keep your money, again, there are websites where you can look up your bank and see how aligned they are with climate change as well as other issues. So if you're not happy with what your bank's doing, change. And again, there have been campaigns in America to do exactly this. Three, where you spend your money. Be really mindful about where you spend your money. And that might be down to you know when you're buying fruit and veg, which has been flown in from overseas, the brands that you're buying from, try and consume less and repair more. That's probably the best, best parting point. But just think about, you know, what is the impact on climate change and nature of your spending habits? And if you change things, 
how would that change? And there, again, there's some great apps that allow you to do that. But the one that has the most leverage and the biggest impact, and I think Jeff Scott talked about this on yesterday's episode, if you haven't heard it, is where you invest your money, where you grow your money. And so some research done by Nordea that says that if you invest your pension fund in a sustainable and responsible way over 40 years, that's 27 times more impactful than flying less, eating less red meat, and cycling to work. And so if you haven't, first and foremost, figure out where's your pension, how much is it? So just for your own financial well-being, understand your pension. But second thing, find out who's running your pension. Is there a responsible investment strategy for there? What are the investment beliefs? And again, is that being run in alignment with how you'd want it to be? And if you're not sure, just send an email to the HR department. It's probably the most impactful thing that you could do. And if people want to find out more, you've got a book out early next year. <laughs> I, I do, yes. Freedom. Plug, plug, plug. Great. Freedom. How to earn it, keep it and grow it. Rob, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and good luck this week. Naomi, thank you so much. Bankers for Net Zero will be hosting a programme of thought-leading events at COP27 in the finance tent in the Green Zone, or you can follow us via our website, bankersfornetzero.co.uk, and go to the COP-specific page. And if you want to, subscribe to this podcast to get episodes of Talking COP as soon as they drop on the ground here in Sharm El-Sheikh. You've been listening to Talking COP from Bankers for Net Zero.